Well, last night you heard about the good cop, bad cop routine. Well, this is the bad one again. <laughs> I come to give you... <laughs> well, the serious part about this, I come to talk about not self this evening. Um, I realized when... Speaking on the first talk I gave, on the, I think it was the very first evening, the very first full day, that uh, I spoke about the marks of existence, the tilakana, but I didn't actually manage to speak about not-self, having spent quite a bit of time talking about dukkha, having spent quite a lot of time talking about impermanence. So I'm going to rectify that night tonight and hopefully put it into a kind of practical context as well. But I want to start off with a couple of quotes uh, the first one is the Buddha from the Sangyutta Nikaya. He who imagines is bound by Mara. He who does not imagine is freed from the evil one. I am. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. This I am. This is an imagining. I shall be. This is an imagining. I shall not be. This is an imagining. Embodied shall I be, formless shall I be, I shall be conscious, I shall be unconscious, neither conscious or unconscious shall I be. This imagining is a disease. Imagining is an abscess, a barb. I am is an agitation. I am is a palpitation. I am is a delirium. And finally, I am is a conceit. Do you think we've got a problem? <laughs> uh, the Buddha seems to be indicating, and <laughs> just gently, <laughs> that uh, this thing that we call self may actually cause us a lot of problems. You know, in a way, the Buddha is saying, you've got a problem. And one of the problems, or the loki of this problem, is what we call self. In one of the very oldest texts, the Yatakavaga, which is in Suttanapata, in uh, one of the verses in it, he says, the sage should completely stop the thought, I am, which is the root of naming associated with conceptual proliferation. Now that might sound technical, but it means actually the source of so much of our thought processes. The kind of thinking that's run amok is associated with self. It's one of, if you like, the nodes around which this conceptual proliferation circulates. There are other nodes as well, um, but this is one of the chief ones. The Buddha is saying something about the self which is very, very important. He's not, um, within his own culture, he's not trying to get us to do away with the self. This is very important to understand. I often say to groups that actually what the Buddha teaches is what is not self. What is not self. Not the teaching of no self. A tremendous amount hangs on one little consonant, just that little T, the difference between no and not. 
Uh, I think it would be rather startling if I suddenly said to you, actually, you walked in this hall thinking you had a self, but now you have no self. All you have is a self-shaped hole. <laughs> Where the self used to be, there's just a nice little, nice little hole there. Now, this is not what the Buddha is talking about when he speaks about this very, very important teaching of not-self. Prima facie, this teaching of not-self also seems very counterintuitive. Um, in so much of our experience, the self is screaming at us, here I am, you know, here I am in every experience, and I've got to be right in the middle of this experience because I am so important. You know, that's the self for you. It's uh, basically elevating itself into a degree of importance. This is recognized in some cultures, particularly in Tibetan culture, where, for example, the word ego, uh, which is in Tibetan ngagye, actually translates as something like I as king. <laughs> yeah. It's the I as king that sits there in the center of the experience, dictating what will go on. Now, the self um, hasn't always been seen as just a problem within Buddhist practice and thought. Um, it's very ineffable. It's very, very difficult for us to get some kind of grasp on what this notion of the self is. And here's a, a contemporary um, writer. Some of you might know his work, actually, Daniel Dennett, talking about the self, he says. Um, this is how he puts it. You enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron, and before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor impulse, scratching your head and wondering where yourself is. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very difficult to pin this down. Again, just to use one more quote before I move into the, into the depth of what I really want to say this evening. Catherine Mansfield, um, some of you might know, she's a short story writer, a very friend of Virginia Woolf's. Uh, Catherine Mansfield once said she was very perplexed by the idea of trying to be true to yourself. She says, when I look inside myself, what I find is a concierge with a hotel of 100 guests. <laughs> yeah. I think that feeling sometimes rings true, doesn't it? Well, because when we begin to examine our own experience of what this self is, A, it's very difficult to grasp, and B, it seems to insert itself in different places, in different ways, in different experiences. Yeah. And this is really part of what the Buddha is trying to get us to see, is that it's not that there is no self, there is no fixed, abiding center around which our, if you like, our experience circulates. The self is, in some senses, merely a function of things like language. This led the Austrian philosopher Wittgenstein to actually say in philosophical investigations, he believed that the self was merely a grammatical error. <laughs> yeah. A product of language, something which actually is there, for example, in any good European language, you'll probably have a self with predicates of experience, such as, I am happy, I am sad, I am this, I am that. It's just a way of forming a sentence. Um, we have these subject predicate sentences in English um, and in other European languages, and we don't go around looking for, if you like, the 
the, the part of the sentence which forms the subject. You know, such as, it is raining. Have you ever found the it yet? <laughs> we don't go around searching for the it, we, but we do go around trying to reify and actually solidify this sense of self around which so much of our experience appears, appears prima facie to circulate. Now the Buddha was dealing in a culture, and I just want to kind of place this historically for a second. He was dealing with a culture which very, very much believed in a solid sense of self, an unchanging reality. Any of you know any Pali at all will know, of course, that this doctrine is known in Pali as anatta. Yeah? Atta meaning self, which is actually a Pali version of the Sanskrit Atman, which uh, probably quite a lot of you know, particularly if you've had any connections with yoga traditions. The Atman was considered to be the abiding, unchanging reality of the individual, somewhat akin to a soul in many senses, but also having some differences from that as well. It was this, actually, which took up re rebirth, reincarnation. It was the Atman that was reincarnated, both in Jainism and Brahmanism, um, this is what went on. This was the abiding essence of the individual. It was their real self. Ever heard that phrase before? Yeah. It used to be very much, I don't know, when I first started off in this path, you know, everybody headed to India to find their real selves. <laughs> I don't think anybody actually found one. <laughs> They're quite rare species, if you have no, you know, this notion of a real self. Um, but everybody went looking for this kind of real self as if there was some abiding sense that they were going to discover within themselves about who or what they are or what they were. Now this is what is being denied by the Buddha in the sense on a very empirical basis, almost on the basis that Daniel Dennett is talking about here, but he's talking about in very modern terms. When we come to seek empirically the self, when we come within our meditative practice to look at what might be a self, then all we find actually is experiences. This is what we find. We find the experience of, you know, for example, Vedana. We find bodily experience. We find conscious experience. We find mind experiences. Uh, we find a whole gamut of experiences but we don't find some kind of abiding or lasting self within our actual experience. So much so that almost as a mantric um, phrase that runs throughout much of the Pali Canon is this phrase which is actually attached to thought or we can attach to thought, which is, this is not I, this is not me, and this is not mine. Yeah. As if we have to constantly keep reminding ourselves that, of course, there is no fixed abiding sense of self underlying all of this flux of experience. Why should it be any different, one might ask oneself? Why should this be any different from any other phenomena? All other phenomena are changing. All other phenomena are evanescent and transitory. Yet, there is this kind of peculiar, almost arrogance within the human condition that thinks somehow we can be elevated above it. It's like it goes, well, everything is changing, but not me. 
Yeah. Not me. And this includes also death. Everybody's, of course, one knows one's going to die, but not me. Yeah. There's a kind of sense of something fixed and abiding that isn't subject to the conditions of arising and passing away within the individual. This is a burden. I don't know if you've ever noticed. The self is a burden. It's a torment, often. It's something which is, actually, at this stage, if I usually have a whiteboard or something like that, I usually draw, draw, draw the first-person pronoun onto the board, I. Now, when you draw the first-person pronoun, it only works in English, by the way. Most other languages, it doesn't work. But in English, the first-person pronoun, I, look at it. All stick-like, lonely. desperately trying to keep itself together. <laughs> you know, the top might fall off at any moment. <laughs> it could wander away from its bottom. <laughs> yeah. So the, the self is a very, very difficult phenomena. And most of, uh, or you know, I say most, I would say a lot of the time, we're actually spent in a deep struggle trying to get this chimerical object to stay put in our experience, because it does wander off. Yeah. There are certain experiences, for example, and I'm not talking even here about meditative experience, there will be certain experiences where we are deeply, deeply absorbed or interested or curious or captivated by something where actually this will not be the center of your experience. It will not be something which is shouting at you, here I am. Yeah. The self also is a tremendous drain on our energies. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when I think of this, I often think, some of you might have seen this uh, movie, The Little Shop of Horrors, you know, with the great big Venus flytrap in it. Do you remember what the Venus flytrap says? Feed me. <laughs> That's like the self. <laughs> Just keep on feeding me. <laughs> Yeah, it wants substantiating. Why does it want substantiating? Well, I think, you know, to come back to a little bit more seriousness here, it wants substantiating because actually at the heart of our sense of being, there is also often a sense of hollowness. Yeah. A sense of something which is not quite replete, not quite full, not quite substantiated in this world, not quite as solid as the things that we see around us. There is also a lot of fear around this sense of insubstantiality that we need, in some sense, to fill that sense of insubstantiality. So much, actually, that the self actually is about lack. It's about a fundamental lack within our experience, which we attempt by the various strategies that we engage in, all the strategies that are there for us. And in the Western world, we have all the goodies of the Western world um, to try and satisfy that need. But I'm sure that most of us have had that experience of finding, of course, when we try to satisfy that need, it doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually make us more substantial. It doesn't make us more solid in this world. We're almost as, as fragile and fleeting as ever despite this attempt. But now not only are we flat, fragile and fleeting and transitory and evanescent, but we're also miserable. We're dukkering through this experience. 
Now, the Buddhist tradition has paid a great deal of attention to this, to this uh, sense of trying to inform our understanding with this sense of the lack of substance to this notion that we feel to be so much ourselves. And as I say, we really are fighting something which is almost commonsensical, that here I am, I. I'm kind of nailed to this existence. And when I get angry and when I get desiring and when I'm greedy, here I am very, very substantially often in those experiences. And so it actually takes quite a lot of shifting, quite a lot of shaking, quite a lot of standing close to that experience of seeing that there is no self bound to this. There's a passage that runs. We've been talking about the Satipatthana Sutta for, you know, for these last five days. You know, in the Satipatthana Sutta is a little phrase that runs throughout all of the sections, you know, whether it's the Kaya Anupasana, the section on the body, or the, or the Chitta Anupasana, or the uh, Vedana Anupasana. In all of these sections, this little phrase, to see body as body, to see feelings as feelings, to see mind as mind, and to see Dhammas as Dhammas. And one of the main meanings of this, one of the main connotations behind this phrase is to actually see it without adding something in. Without adding this is to be my body. Without adding it into being my feelings, my mind, and my dhammas in this. It has other connotations as well, but this is one of the main things. And of course, it doesn't just come as this kind of single entity of the eye. The eye is supported by an amazing amount of narrative. There's the narratives of the self, the self-structuring through the narratives, through the stories that we tell ourselves. And the one thing that's an ordinary experience that comes about so easily is that we trust those stories. We trust the stories of the self, which are unfolding. The miserable self, the happy self, uh, the self that is suffering, the self that is not suffering, the self that is indifferent, the self that is engaged. All of these things are the narratives which structure our ordinary experience. And we buy into this narrative. We buy into it extremely strongly. There's an English uh, feminist author called Jeanette Winterson. Some of you might have read some of her novels or even come across her. Um, but she writes this wonderfully magical realist novel where the most weird things happen throughout it. But this little phrase runs throughout it, and this almost could be applied to the self. This little phrase runs throughout all of these weird happenings that's going on. Trust me, I'm telling you stories. Yeah. Trust me, I'm telling you stories. In a way, that's what the self keeps whispering in our ear. Trust me, I'm telling you a story. Yeah. And so we get bound into this, this sense of the narratives which are, are there, the narratives which we inhabit, live, and actually this is the real meaning of this notion of papancha. We circulate around the sense of self with a certain amount of papancharing obsessional proliferation, spreading wide, you know, thinking run amok. You know, there's many, many ways of describing proliferation, but it's the tendency of the mind to go in all sorts of directions, but here particularly nailed down and circulating round this sense of self.
The French psychoanalyst um, Jacques Lacan, um, in a very famous paper in the 19, late 1940s, 1949, uh, wrote a paper called The Mirror Stage. Some of you might even have read it. But it's, uh, it's basically talking about how apes are more, hu more intelligent than humans. It's saying in the, in, in the development of animals, and particularly in the development of um, the way, in a sense, they start to form a conception of themselves, there are mirrors involved. Yeah, now, this is usually actually not literally a physical mirror. It's mirroring behavior. You know? It's a kind of mirroring behavior that is often there between, say, a, a, a mother and a child or a father and a child. And... Um, the basic nub of what Lacan is saying is what happens when you do this with an ape is this. You hand an ape an ordinary mirror. You know, we're not just talking about, um, you know, because some cultures have physical mirrors. Not every culture, but a lot of cultures. You hand an ape a mirror, and what does it do? Hmm. And then it loses all interest. What happens with a human being is this. <laughs> You're ahead of me. <laughs> Forever. <laughs> this is another way of putting the myth of Narcissus. <laughs> this is the narcissistic myth. And we all know about Narcissus. Is Narcissus was the character, of course. There's many, many different ways of telling the story, but the character who falls in love with his own image in the pool. In one of the very famous medieval versions of this, Narcissus actually falls into his own image and drowns. What a wonderful metaphor. Yeah. Um, I think particularly when we think of this, even within the Buddhist context, is that we're actually drowning in ourselves a lot of the time. Hence, a lot of the dukkha that we experience is actually literally that drowning in ourselves, in our own desires and our own aversions, you know, or in our own views. One of the other nodes which is very much linked to the self of proliferation is views. Actually, views is pretty innocuous. I call it opinionatedness. You know, there is a self linked to opinionatedness, um, and it's also linked to craving. This word craving that's used, um, the word tanha in uh, Pali has a degree of pathos which it doesn't have in English you know, when we talk about craving. There's a tremendous pathos to the human condition. The craving is an attempt to substantiate, to make this self much more solid. Now, as a result of this, of course, that the Buddhist traditions over the centuries have attempted... Um, to really get us to move in close to our experience and see this actual lack of a self within our experience as being a substantial object within our experience. Not that it isn't a useful category. You'll find on occasions, not that often, but on occasions, even the Buddha in the, in the suttas will use the word I. Mostly he will use the word the Tathagata, you know, this particular uh, expression in, in Pali and Sanskrit. He will use this word. Sometimes he will use the word I. So he's not averse to using the word I. The I is a useful frame and conception 
for actually beginning to you know, order experience, but it isn't substantial, it isn't solid. In my own training in Tibetan monasteries, in my initial training before I went to Sri Lanka, I actually had to do a very long experiment on the self. And it went like this, and it took weeks. I was working with one of the Dalai Lama's tutors, Ling Rinpoche, and um, there was a few of us doing this, and it was very much to look where the self might possibly be. And we literally moved from hair follicles to big toenails in trying to find the self. The question was, where is the self? Is it findable? Well, actually, if that's the case, then we have to move through all of our experience. Um, looking at, is, for example, myself, my hair follicles? Is myself my liver? Is myself my, you know, my toes? Is myself my thoughts? Is myself? And we went on for this for weeks. And I must admit, in those early days, I got quite irritated. We did this day after day after day. After the, I kind of felt be, beaten down by this, this whole task of just moving through this, asking, is this the self? Is that the self? Is this the self? Is that the self? Is this the self? No, it's not. <laughs> and we went on for this day after day, and finally I kind of lost it. <laughs> and I said to him, why are we doing this? And he goes, well, you know what it's like if you lose your wallet. Pardon? <laughs> what do you mean if you lose your wallet? <laughs> he said, what happens if you lose your wallet? Don't you look in every possible place it might be to find out that you've actually lost it? And this is what we were doing. <laughs> actually going through the whole of our experience, <laughs> actually to almost prove to ourselves there was no substantial element within our experience that we could actually pin down and go, this is me. Yeah. That is actually me. Now, I don't think we have to go to quite these extremes, as I often do in the Tibetan tradition, to actually get that experience. It's beginning to see, of course, that the things that arise in our minds arise on causes and conditions, and they will pass away. However, the Buddha takes this notion of what it might be unitary, this sense of the self, the I, the first person pronoun that we think of, of as being so unitary, um, being so perhaps substantial, despite the fact actually our experience is often telling us otherwise, our feeling of insufficiency, our feeling of lack, actually constantly testify to the fact I'm trying to fill myself up in some way. And in that act, that very act of trying to substantiate myself, to fill myself up, to fill the insufficiency, I am actually in the act of creating something. Yeah. But something that actually will just shift and change and move and not be fixed. And the same goes with aversion. Aversion is another really good way of substantiating yourself. If you really want to feel yourself, just get angry. Yeah. If you really want to feel yourself, be irritated. Yeah. Irritation, anger, and all of these things are very much linked to trying to make myself a much more solid object in the world. The French existential philosopher Gabriel Marcel once said, of course, there are two um, ways that we can be in this world, um, and actually we end up confusing them. One is our just sense of being here in this world, and the other is having 
Um, and actually, if you learn another language, probably most of you will know the first two verbs you learn is, is to have and to be. These are usually the two, first two verbs that you learn. In doing this, what we end up doing is confusing the two, that we actually think we are what we have. That we actually try to collect around ourselves myriads of possessions or knowledge or, or whatever it might be, just all of the possessiveness that we can engage in and to try and actually make ourselves much more substantial. So there's this real battle going on to try and make ourselves substantial in this world. Jean-Paul Sartre once said in Being a Nothingness, he said, basically human beings are trying to turn themselves into tables and chairs. Yeah. Table, tables and chairs have a solidity. This has a solidity. And it doesn't change that much. And we're not, you know, I can't look at it and actually watch the change unless I watch for a very long period of time. Actually, human beings are so, so insubstantial, comparatively. Yeah. If you want to watch something insubstantial, close your eyes. We're watching something very insubstantial. I'm not saying not real, but it's insubstantial in that it's fleeting, it's transitory, and it isn't tied down to something which is an unchanging element of ourselves. So this is very practical, despite you know, seeming, as I say, to be counterintuitive, to be sort of slightly technical. The actual practice of this is actually very rooted in our ordinary lives and beginning to observe how we try to create this self, how we try to um, make something which isn't actually there within our experience. So much of the time, and actually in that practice, notice what we're doing, was going through and identifying what is not myself. Yeah. Not to prove that there is something fixed there, but as if you like going through all the categories of elimination. Now, we might not do that, but actually when we are looking at our processes, when we're looking at our mental, physical processes, what we will find is the absence of something fixed behind it. There is a beauty to that. In a way, there is something slightly grotesque about the notion of an unchanging self. There is something beautiful in the transitory. There is something beautiful in the evanescence of our thought processes in our simply being human, being here, and changing. Actually, if there was a fixed self, I almost feel like saying, well, shall we go home? Yeah, there wouldn't make much point, would there? in doing what we're doing. In a way, the kind of practices we're engaging in, in sitting here, beginning to stand close to our experience, turning towards that experience, not turning away, seeing it as it appears, without these additions coming in, without doing that, is actually to be confronted with this, in a sense, lack of something substantial. Now, in engaging in this process, engaging in this very, very real process of turning towards, turning towards our transitory thoughts, feelings, emotions, mental states, what we're turning towards is actually the reality of life, the reality of experience. Now, in doing that, there is the possibility of turning unhappy experience 
iterable experience in terms of repetition, being driven by certain mental states, which we keep repeating. And as I think I said on the first night, one of the best definitions in some senses of sangsara is repeated experience characterized with a feeling tone of dukkha. Yeah. This is what sangsara is. It's a way of being in this world. It's, it's a kind of it's a, a verb form, just like the self that we're opening up to is not a thing, it's not a noun. We're opening up to a sense of being a verb in this world, and that's wonderful. Okay. That allows the possibility of something we're trying to engage in here, which is the possibility of change. Now, if I was in myself, innately, inherently, as something fixed, good or bad, just to use those categories, you know, typical categories we use of ethical discrimination as well, good or bad, wholesome or unwholesome, if you want to use um, the more typical Buddhist terms, kusala and akusala. If we turn towards that as being an innate experience, then we are turning towards something that actually can't be changed. If you're good or bad as your essence, well, that is it. You, know, you might be able to tinker around on the peripheries, but you wouldn't be able to actually alter this fundamental categorization, which is at the heart of our experience, which is goodness or badness as an ethical category. Yeah. So if you are intrinsically good, well, that's fine. If you're intrinsically bad, well. The Buddhist tradition testifies against this view in that uh, many edifying stories are told. Most of you will probably know the story of Angulimala. Yeah, probably the, the first recorded serial killer. <laughs> yeah, he goes around collecting fingers yeah, as some kind of probably weird tantric-type practice in his own day. Um, but that beside, I mean, the whole point about this story is even somebody who is admired in such unwholesome behavior and has been for a long time can change. That can, that it doesn't mean that he evades, of course, the consequences of his previous actions, but he can change. And I think this is, if you like, a beacon for all of us, knowing no matter how fixed we might feel in any particular mental state or mood or view of ourselves, then actually that fixity, again, is a story we tell ourselves about it. It's a self-conceptualization that we engage in. Now, self-conceptualizations are there in often a lot of the statements that we make in ordinary language about ourselves. About, there are statements that you make about yourself as a person. What self-conceptualization often does is it actually enhances our uh, basic psychological rigidity. We become psychologically rigid the moment I start telling myself stories and believing the stories that I tell myself about myself in this. You know, and we can think of these. You know, we can have phrases like, I am a person who. I am a person who does not. My favorite part of myself is. <laughs> the least favorite part of myself is. You know, um, I am a person who is good at, I am a person who is bad at. I mean, we could have actually a long list of these phrases of ways of self-conceptualizing ourselves. 
what these are attached to is a vision of identity. A vision of identity. Human beings, in many senses, in their samsaric conditions, are beings who are actually trying to search for an identity. Something to identify with, something to, in a sense, using Sartre's expression, something that will make them more substantial and more like a table or a chair, in that it doesn't change and it has some solidity in this world. Now, often these become our roles in life. They often become our roles in life. They often become, for example, our professions. We end up identifying so much with our professions and our roles um, that actually when they're changed or when they are changing, when they are taken away from us, there's this big one that comes no matter what your profession is, and it's called retirement. Yeah. Now, if you've identified so deeply with your role, that can be, and I'm not joking about this, it can be devastating for some people. They've literally lost their raison d'etre. They've lost their reason for being in this world because their identification is being with their role. So I become the teacher. I become the businessman. I become the politician. I become whatever it might be. And I turn myself into that type of person and identify so strongly that actually when it's taken away, there is nothing left but in some sense some wrenching dukkha usually left um, as a result of that over-identification. So we're often searching and trying to identify. Now this is going on even without the roles that we play. It's going on within the narratives that we tell ourselves about ourselves. When you say, for example, I am X or Y or Z, you're not actually telling the whole truth. Because there's going to be part of you isn't X or Y or Z. I am this type of person. Yes, in certain circumstances, you might be that type of person. In other circumstances, you might be another kind of person. So you're not telling yourself the whole truth. Sometimes, in other words, we have to identify when we're not that. I am always like that. This is actually a phenomenon which was identified as being called overgeneralized memory. We overgeneralize. We take certain circumstances and we overgeneralize them into you are always like that and I am always like that. Yeah. Ever caught yourself saying that? I, can, I have kind of, kind of cringeworthy visions of me having said things like that. You're always like that with me. <laughs> You're never very nice to me. <laughs> You know, we might tell ourselves these things, but we're not telling ourselves the whole truth about ourselves or telling the truth about somebody else. What we're trying to do is fix them with some kind of identity. You know, so there is this search to pin down something. Now, the way the Buddha talks in, let's get to just the way the Buddha speaks about this notion of the self. Well, the self is a burden. He encapsulates the whole of our phenomenal, phenomenal experience under five basic categories, which he calls khandas or skandhas in Sanskrit. Aggregates, aggregates of experience. 
You know, these are what make up our whole psychophysical world. They're not discrete. They're actually, the word aggregate is a very useful word. It's what's aggregated together in terms of when we bundle stuff together, in terms of experience, this is what we find. We find there is physical type experience. There are perceptual types of experience. There are Vedana type of experiences. There are Sankara type of experiences, you know, formations and the ways that these formations come about. And then there is conscious type of experiences. And he calls these, you know, uh, five khandas or aggregates of clinging. Yeah. Now, the clinging and is, is a sense of clinging to that which actually we should be letting go of. trying to, again, substantiate our sense of self through these various categories. I am my perceptions. I am my feelings. I am my habits. Good translation for formations, by the way. Habits. Ways of doing things. Proclivities. Um, Ways that we will engage with the world. I am my consciousness. That's a good one. That has a long history in the history of Buddhism, people identifying with being their consciousness, yeah. in later Buddhism in particular. Now, the Buddha uses a metaphor throughout his teaching, often of fire. You've probably come across this. If you've read much sort of material, even delved, delved into it, you'll find that the Buddha uses a metaphor of fire that runs through. Fire was very important in ancient Indian culture, just as a kind of side, um, something um, in parenthesis. Fire was very important in Indian culture. It was used for all religious ritual. Um, the Buddha speaks about something as being five uh, actual, uh, sorry, three roots of our unwholesome experience. He calls these three fires, you know, which actually related to Vedic culture. Now, that besides, what he gives us the image of is actually five bundles. This is another word for kanda. Five bundles which is what we actually constitute the self out of. Actually, we are, in a sense, drawing the self out of these five bundles. But here's the image that's being used very much implicitly, sometimes explicitly in the suttas. These five bundles of wood are on fire. We're carrying them around. We're actually staggering around with five bundles of wood which are on fire. this is the image that's being used in relationship. We are still clinging to them, despite they are painful, they are fiery, and they are actually consuming us in many ways. Now, the the five khandhas that the the Buddha speaks about, I'm not going to go into detail, you can find a lot of detail about these, but just very briefly, the five khandhas, the rupakhandha, the khanda of our physical experience, of our physical processes. And all of these khandas indicate processes. They are not things. It's not as if suddenly what we had, we thought we had a unitary self, now we have five of them. We have five things instead. And actually, if you go into the Abhidharma, you end up with a lot more. Myriads of little selves. 
Yeah. If we identify in that way, which is what we're actually being discouraged from doing, from discouraged from identifying any of these processes which we can actually see in our experience. We can see physical process. The beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta starts, of course, with kaya. It starts with body, with physical processes, with getting in touch with just this feeling of embodiment, this body sitting here, this body being, this body breathing. This is what is spoken about in relationship to the the khanda of physicality. Then, of course, very easily fits onto this, there is the khanda of Vedana, Vedana khanda, which is the khanda of our hedonic tones, to use that slightly technical way, but often, more more often than not, you'll see this translated as the the khanda of feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, and neither, sukha, dukkha, and neither sukha and dukkha. Yeah. Slightly different word often used for mental processes, but you know, we don't need to go into that. Then there is this one. I'm just going to concentrate a little bit on this one um, to try and um, you know, to finish off here. The khanda of sanya, the khanda of sanya, the khanda of perceptual discriminative activity. Yeah. The job of sati is actually to direct and to help sanya to function properly. What we're engaging in by looking mindfully at our processes is actually to guide our sanya, our ways of discriminating and perceiving away from habitual sankhara-driven ways of perceiving. I was saying to a group later on today, earlier on today, um, that actually, here's the cynical view, are we ever perceiving anything new? Because if everything is somehow related to some form of sankharas and association and um, formed way and habitual responses, am I actually ever experiencing anything new? I think the answer from this early Buddhist perspective is sometimes not. We are just re-experiencing the same. This is why when we step outside of our own culture, Sometimes we come alive. We see something different before we fall back asleep again um, and habitualize it. Yeah. Now, this is a very cynical view, but it doesn't have to be so cynical because the point is in this practice is that sati is there to redirect, to actually break the link with these habitual tendencies to perceive things in certain ways and through certain associations. Yeah. It's to actually break that link. Now, sanya has a number of different functions. This process of perception and discrimination. The functions are, for example, to mark an object so that I can recognize it. So language is a big part of this function. To actually use our linguistic capacities um, to mark an object. Now, marking an object for recognition, implies something else, which is also extremely important, which is actually memory. There's no point in having language without remembering what you've marked with it. Yeah. And marking here can be all different ways of marking, through, can be through any symbols that we might use for identification. So we discriminate the world as we grow up 
We learn, get immersed in language, we grow up with a vocabulary, that vocabulary hopefully enlarges, and our world in some senses get a, gets to be a bigger place because we begin to discriminate more and more categories. And we only do this through being able to remember. Now, with onset sometimes of dege degenerative brain illnesses in later age, we often lose that discriminative capacity our vocabulary shrinks again. This is the disaster scenario, by the way. <laughs> um, it shrinks again, and then we're left almost at the stage that we began with a very small, limited way of differentiating in this world. Now, this capacity of memory within Sanya is so important, it's actually linked, of course, to who we are. The whole notion of self is actually linked to memory. What is it that makes us think there is some underlying, unchanging element that is me that runs through all of this experience? Well, it's the fact that I can often remember things that I did at the age of six or seven or 10 or 15 or 17 or 20, 21, 30, and all the way through your age, you know, all up to the age that you are. Now, if we just think about that for a second, you will realize, of course, that actually what we're getting is a series of snapshots which we're calling ourself through the passage of time. And it's the ability to link them through memory that makes, it, makes us say, this is me. This is me. And gives perhaps the underlying sense of there being something that goes through the whole of those changes. Now, with the falling away of memory, often some of these elements drop out. One of the things actually we even know just in terms of thinking about ourselves, certain memories will rise, certain memories will fall away. You know, I remember certain things about my early childhood, one year, and perhaps I've forgotten them. I can remember stuff 20 years ago that I was doing, and sometimes I find it difficult to remember what I did last week. You know, so any notion of the self is built on fragmentary snapshots linked together by memory. And we see how our sense of self starts to drop away when memory starts to fade, when that starts to drop away as well. Yeah. With the onset, as I say, of, of things like Alzheimer's and that, there is this terrifying experience that people have of literally not knowing who they are. Now, I want to get this clear. This is why the Buddha is saying it is not no self. You would think, actually, that with one of those illnesses, one of those senses of the loss of memory, there would be a feeling of repose. Ah, I've got rid of myself. There isn't. There's terror. Yeah. There's terror. There's disassociation. There is all kinds of um, terrifying scenarios because people cannot piece together who they are, and hold themselves together at all. So the self could be seen as a function of the memories that we have, the images that we pass through time, which is a function of sanya. So it's not getting rid of self, it's actually beginning to see how it functions. And this is very typical of what the Buddha is doing. How does this self that we feel to be unitary, that actually when we begin to look closely at an experience, how does it actually function? Not is there a self or isn't there a self? 
That's not really the Buddha's question. The Buddha's question is very practical. How is it? How is it? How is this self? How is it in this experience? Now, when we begin to look close, we see it as fleeting and changing. Just to, for you know, reasons of completion, I'll just mention very briefly the last two and then we'll finish. There, of course, is the formations. The formations are something which is, you know, which is Sankarakanda, which is actually the formations, the habits, the dispositions that we built up through the course of our life and will continue to build up for as long as we're alive, unless we free ourselves from them. These are the tendencies of the mind to run down certain rails. You know, so whether we build up good sankharas or whether we build up bad sankharas, actually the Buddha is really talking about ridding ourselves of sankharas altogether ridding ourselves of habitual tendencies of the mind to run in certain ways. This, again, is what you're coming close to in the experience. When we sit and we look and we come close to our experience, what we see are patterns of mind. You begin to identify the patterns of mind. The patterns of mind are the sankharas. And finally, of course, there is consciousness, which is consciousness is experience in a sense all of the other factors, and a lot more besides. It's not a thing in itself, it's a codependent arising, it arises in relationship to the other khandhas. It doesn't actually have an independent existence. It depends for its existence on, if you like, objects. The objects of the khandhas and the objects of the world. Consciousness arises in that way. So when we looked, finally to finish this off, when we look deeply at our experience, and we perhaps use this as a guiding framework to be able to look at our experience, we see lack of identity. We can't identify any one of these five khandhas as being ourself. There are kind of criteria that the Buddha says, if it was ourself, then any of these khandhas would be under our control. And they're not. There will be something governing them. There will be something controlling them. Something like a homunculus in the head, you know, pulling the levers of the crane. Which was ourself. Now, this is what is being denied. There is no kind of little man sitting there in your head or little woman directing everything. So what we get is the flux of our experience without that sense of I. Without that sense of I am. Interestingly, in the fetters, the subtle sense of I am, which is there within conceit, mana is actually one of the last things to go. So I am, from the gross sense, from sakayaditi, self-view, identity, all of the things I've mentioned so far, down to this subtle sense of I am, which is still there, kind of quivering away um, in things like I am better, I am worse, and I am the same. The last one, by the way, is the arrogance of mediocrity. I am the same as. It's the way of reducing everything to sameness. What happens when we begin to see this in process, when we begin to see it, when we stand close to it, and actually just stand close to our experience, and see the absence of this fixity within our experience, we can gain a tremendous sense of liberation. Even if we see it fleetingly, 
Because actually it's a liberation from being bound to this constant reificatory process and the liberation into possibilities of change. And I think I'll finish there. Thank you, everybody. Okay, well, we now have a walking period and come back at uh, quarter two. I'm sure the bell will be rang. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.